You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. Hello and welcome to Orange County's longest running business talk show. I am your host, Rick Franzi, and we have a very good, if not excellent show planned for you today. Why do you ask? Because our guest, Bill Cologne, who is Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder for Single Pass, is here with us today. Bill, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on the show. And let's start with your origin story. You know, can you share your original motivation or the inspiration that you and your other co-founders had to start your firm? Sure. Well, actually, I was introduced to two positions in Phoenix from uh, another position that I had developed a product for. And we were successful in selling that product to a large company. So now when his friends have ideas, he always refers them to me. And so I met these two interventional radiologists that do a lot of biopsy procedures. And they've said, we have issues that are unresolved. And we had created a product. They had a product concept. They found some IP. And it looked like they had something that when we did diligence by reaching out to the marketplace, that was very meaningful. It really could help improve the safety of biopsy procedures. So that motivated us enough. I have a group that I work with to co-found the company with those two positions as co-founders. So you've been up and operational two years, 24 months? Almost 24 months, exactly. Okay. So that I love to talk with the early stage CEOs about, you know, uh, what have you learned since you got into the business, you know, 24 months ago, and any major or minor pivots to the business model since you've engaged the marketplace? Yeah, I think we learned a lot about the market. So when we did a lot of pre-interviews with clinicians about the need for a product like this, there was kind of mixed feedback. But when we looked closer at the published data, we saw there was a true need. And the major pivot that we had to do pretty early, the clinicians that we worked with, they had a design, a specific design in mind. And very quickly, we learned because of safety reasons, we had to change the design. So that was what we thought we were going to work on right out of the gate. Immediately had to make a hard left turn. Uh, probably delayed us three or four months. But uh, through that, the product performance was improved and the safety was improved. So it was a pivot in the right direction. So so let's talk about the reality in your space, a highly regulated space of what is the process to go from an idea to a product that can be used, you know, in mass? Just one word, brutal. So, <laughs> okay. Well, there so, you have I mean, it. Yeah, through the design and development under design control, meeting all the regulations. And for our device, we need to do you know, benchtop testing, of course, and animal testing, and then finally a clinical study. And then so we've made our regulatory submissions. There's a separate one in the U.S. and then a different one for Europe. And literally, I just finished coming from our uh, audit for the European approval. And uh, we passed our second audit, which means we will be recommended for the CE mark or approval in Europe. So that means probably in 30 to 45 days, we will be able to finally commercialize our product outside of the United States. So it sounds like the process, well, you call it brutal, is not, I mean, it, it's not, it doesn't, how much did it extend the time from when you could have gotten into the market if you didn't have to go through the regulatory hurdles? Oh, gosh. I mean, it, at least a year plus. Okay. You know, figuring out the design and figuring out how to make the product work is 
relatively quick, but then everything else you have to bounce through. But also there's different class products. We have a, what's called the class two product, which is less burdensome than class three. Those usually require a large clinical study and a lot of follow-up that can be several years. And it is one of the reasons we did select this product. We knew it was class two and had a, well, I guess we'll call it in our industry, a relatively short approval process. We, we felt we could be on the market in, in about two years. And it looks like we're going to meet that. So Bill, this isn't your first rodeo. And, uh, and so how much of your previous experience has helped you this time around with single pass and getting as far as you've gotten so far? I think all 40 years okay. of my experience. So I've probably developed a dozen or more devices all the way from concept through commercialization. So I've been through the process for other class two devices as well as class three devices. But the team that I'm working with, my partners and they are similarly experienced design. So it's, it's a collective effort by a large team that has R&D knowledge, has clinical knowledge, has regulatory knowledge, uh, and manufacturing knowledge. So that's collectively, gosh, I think the four of us as co-founders, we have over 100 years of experience hmm. doing this. And I think uh, between the four of us, we have over 150 patents on medical devices. So this is, we do this serially. We, we have a company like this, we get it to the finish line, we get an exit, and then we, we do it again. Okay, I don't want to put the cart in front of the horse, but you you said it, so it's like a presidential debate. You mentioned it, so I'm allowed to ask you about it. What is the finish line in your mind? For single the finish day? line is, is to sell the company. Okay. So we are great developers, great at getting approvals. Uh, we'll do what we call a limited market release. We will push it out in Europe and in the United States, get some repeat users, collect more clinical data, but the, the big increase in value for our companies is the moment you get regulatory approvals because the large companies that are really not so great at innovating, they like that risk removed. They are great at marketing. They are great at branding. They are great at selling. They really get stymied by the bureaucracy of, of being so large. So they prefer to purchase innovation as opposed to develop innovation. So that's where guys like us come in. We take the risk. We do the early hard work. And we've let everybody know the, you know the reasonable strategics that should be interested in this product. They know we're close to the finish line. We do have some ongoing discussions now, but once I know for sure that that first regulatory approval is at hand, we'll start making the calls to see if someone has interest. Has it been your experience that when you do get to that point, if you've, if you've done that part of it right, that you get more than one interested strategic? For the most part, yes. But the really interesting thing about this business, you never know why someone will buy or won't buy. Mm -hmm. They have so much going on behind the scenes and we see some decisions that really don't make sense when we see other acquisitions or even the stuff we've done before. And, and you're never sure, it just takes one of the really high level decision makers for whatever reason to say, we need to add that to our bag. Whether it's so they can promote other products they already have whether it's to extend their product line, whether it's to get a hold of some more IP for their patent portfolio, but we're never really sure you know, why they pull the trigger or why they pass. Well, that, that really takes a whole set of questions off the table for me with you, which would be, you know, once you've gotten the regulatory approval, then another set of hard work starts, which is getting adoption in the marketplace. But that's where the strategic with their name brand, Salesforce relationships can really help, huh? Right. Well, I think they realize, you know, we were a small group and once we go out there, we'll hire 
a few distribution companies, a product manager will use a few independent reps in the U.S., but those companies that we would be talking to probably have over 100 U.S. sales reps. And for us to have any kind of impact that they can have immediately just is not feasible, and they understand that. So what they'll mostly do, they're going to check with the four or five key opinion leader positions that we target, ask them if they've used the device, what's your feedback, should we add this to our product line, and they mostly will go by their market evaluation and clinical feedback. So, Bill, that you read my mind, how do you get the value established? And you have to really, well, the, the one nice thing, you can purchase access to the Medicare database. We literally, by physician, can know how many, which physicians do how many liver biopsies, kidney biopsies, so we can go target very busy clinicians. So when we make sales calls, they're very targeted. And then we just have to be convincing and get some of these guys on board to use the product and like it so much that they will reorder. So that's just the key thing because um, they'll have their own advisory boards and we sometimes can't know who's on those boards, but we have to do a very targeted approach. So we, so we aren't calling on somebody who does two biopsies a month. We want to call on the guys that do 50 biopsies a month. Mm -hmm. And most likely they will have some sort of input from strategic or two strategics that are considering an acquisition. So we just need to make a, a reasonable impact and get reorders because they know we're never going to reach any kind of scale that, that they can reach very quickly. It sounds like a version of a shark tank in some ways, you know, all the questions that you, I don't know if you're a fan of that show or not. Yeah, I, I watch it. And of course, you know, every question they're going to ask, we literally go through the same thing. Mostly we go through that while we're raising money. Just like mm. they, they do with our early investors. Who, you know, we have a concept, we have something on paper. We're asking people to trust us and give us money so we can get it to the finish line. And none of those things are guaranteed. They have to uh, look at our team, our experience, our success rate, and then you know, take that leap of faith that, all right, I think these guys uh, can do what they say they're going to do and we'll write a check. And that's where your track record comes in too, though, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, I think the the most clear feedback we get from the early round investors is it really isn't nearly as much as the idea or the market. It really truly is the team. Yes. So that's uh, loud and clear when we've asked several people, okay, why why did you invest? What got you over the finish line? And they will say, you know, the team, you guys have done this before. And we know nothing is fully guaranteed. We're not asking that, but we think we probably have a reasonable chance enough to, to be able to write a check. You know, and I've heard that from private equity and I've heard it from VCs that I know that many times as much or more they're betting on the people as they are the company or the product or the market. It's really, do you, can you, can you get into partnership with the leadership and do you trust them and can you give them your money and expect to get a return? Yeah, it, it's tough to go ask people for money and say, right now this is a, something on paper and, and maybe there's a patent application or an issued patent, but there's nothing they can hold yet. And yet you can uh, you know, bounce through the usual analysis, the market, the unmet need, intellectual property protection, the team and the plan. This is where we're going, how much money we think we need and how long we believe it will take to get there. And we've been relatively accurate in the past. So, you know, come and join us and uh, bet on the team. I would have to imagine those early stage investors are different than maybe later stage people when you have to go back and get some money from people after you've got the product developed and you're making. 
attraction of the early stage people is, is different. You know, for us, we, we tend to do smaller deals. We don't really deal with private equity or with VCs so much. So we stay with uh, the seed or Series A investors. We do a lot of the investment clubs like Tech Coast Angels or New Fund Ventures and those folks. So we do smaller raises, but it, we do look for the people that are willing to take the high risk. You know, the earlier you put the money in, of course, the bigger chance for a return. Right. But of course, uh, more risk. So, yeah, you're right. As you get later, where you are commercial and you're, you're raising money just to increase revenue, you know, then it is a different group of folks. But we like to exit before that. We want to get some sales. <laughs> sales. We're good developers. We, we, we don't want to hire 30 salespeople and, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we want to sign up some distributors, get some traction in the U.S. and Europe, and uh, then talk to the strategics. That's fantastic. There, the world needs people like you and your co-founders to keep reinventing and disrupting industries. But we've not talked about what Single Pass is developing and the problems that it solves. So, uh, keep it at a high level, please, okay. Bill, because we have a general audience here of entrepreneurs. But what is it you do? So, there are millions and millions of biopsy procedures performed every year: liver, kidney, lung, breast work. Mostly, they suspect you may have cancer. So they, they see a spot on some kind of imaging and they want to poke a large hollow needle in your body until they reach that mass, reach in through that needle and pull out a tissue sample so they can do pathology to see, do you indeed have cancer or, or what disease you may have? And currently there's, there's nothing to prevent bleeding when they pull that needle out. They literally just pull the needle out of your body. Sometimes they're uh, five or six inches long. It may be deep in a kidney, maybe people that are relatively uh, heavy. So they're poking a, a pretty large hole relatively deep in your body cavity. And then when they pull the needle out, they apply pressure and they hope you don't bleed. Mm -hmm. And these clinicians that invented or came up with the idea, they had seen enough patients that had problems, bleeding problems, where they either needed to be admitted to the hospital or they needed maybe even a surgical intervention to stop the bleeding. And very rarely and occasionally people do die from this bleeding because it's not detected. So... They had this brilliant idea, well, when we do open surgery, we, we have these cautery devices where we just stop all the bleeding with heat or electricity to you know, run it over the vessels that'll stop bleeding. So the trick was making a probe that's long enough and skinny enough where you can deliver heat to the tip. So we go through this guide needle and we essentially cauterize or you know, say you know, melt the tissue on the way out to prevent any bleeding or stops bleeding if some of it has already started. What a, don't hear this the wrong way, the best ideas are the simplest. What a what an obvious and simple idea. You know, we've heard that and a handful of people have said, how come you guys came up with this first? And I've talked to at least three other companies who, who told us they considered this years ago, but for whatever reason, it got kicked to the back table and they just didn't do it. And the other thing that has happened, the biopsy market grows about 10% a year. So 10 years ago, it was a fraction of what it is now. Mm. And there probably wasn't, I want to say, dollar motivation for large companies to seek that because there weren't enough biopsy procedures. Now, because of better imaging and because of patients living longer, there's more of a chance someone will need a biopsy. So the number of biopsies, which is now, gosh, I think well over 5 million each year, growing at 10% a year, 
the numbers are finally big enough for businesses to take a look at. Let's make a product that serves that market. There finally is maybe some financial gain from that. And the the ROI of avoiding a hospital stay or a surgery, or God forbid, even a more serious condition by the patient is a pretty compelling opportunity for, I would think, companies to be able to, at scale, sell this as a, as a real savings over the current practice that's being done. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits from this. Typically, after the biopsy procedures, they hold you just resting in a bed for six to eight hours, where a nurse is checking in every hour, hour and a half looking at your bandage for bleeding, checking your vital signs. And after six or eight hours, if they think you're okay, they send you home. And so that's bed space they're taking up that could be used for a more valuable procedure and it's nursing time. One to 4% of people end up being admitted to the hospital during the whole period because they do see some issue that leads them to believe we need to keep them longer. And occasionally folks are sent home. We know in um, the two doctors that created this device Last year, they had two patients they sent home after kidney biopsies that hemorrhaged mm-hmm. and got rushed back to the hospital. One woman had open surgery, and they showed me her chart. It took $80,000 to repair her. And unfortunately, the gentleman that hemorrhaged, he passed away before they could fix it. So the, the death rate is exceptionally small. But it is interesting, in these, three, in these two years that I've done this, I've talked to three people who've lost loved ones due to biopsy procedures where they were sent home with an undetected bleed. So it was one patient, it was one mother, and it was one uh, wife. People said, this is truly real because I personally experienced this. Yeah, and what a devastating thing to have happen where you think you're going in for a simple procedure. Yeah, I, I attended about 10 of the procedures in our clinical study. It's just 15 or 20 minutes but there's really high anxiety from the patients because they are told, hey, we don't know if you're gonna have a bleeding issue. You know, we're gonna hold you afterwards. But when they're using our device and saying, we know already from ultrasound after the procedure that you are not bleeding internally. Wow. There is a gigantic relief right. of this anxiety, actually for the clinicians and for the patients. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't imagine that so, anybody, you know, feels good about something that ends up in a bad situation for the patient. So. Well, this is exciting. It sounds like you got a tiger by the tail, maybe here. We hope so. I mean, you know, again, it'll be interesting, you know, how the strategics view this. And probably the the companies that do biopsy procedures are in oncology, since they are already speaking to this physician group. These procedures are performed exclusively by interventional radiologists. Okay. So use imaging, use ultrasound or CT guidance. So that's the call point. So they're already, you know, all the materials we already see in that room for that procedure, those would be the target strategics for us. So so let's change our lens of conversation for the last few minutes that we have together. And I wonder if you could think about the lessons that you learned, Bill, the advice that you've been given, maybe even the advice you give. Is there a piece of business advice that you'd like to share with our audience today? Yeah, the best ever came, I think, the very first week I was on um, out of college and working, my first boss, a very smart guy, said, develop and nurture relationships. And that held Troy worked really hard at, well, back then building the Rolodex, which is now <laughs> changed. But I worked exceptionally hard on that. 
to when I went to meetings, I went to every event, I went to every dinner, I went to every show, I, everything, and worked really hard at you know not only meeting people but trying to offer help to them, and so giving in the relationship as well. Meta served me well, and this is why we get the referrals. I have a partner who's done the same thing, and so this is why we get deal flow. So I, I met these physicians because of the relationships I previously developed, and that turned into a new company. And actually, our group started three companies in 2021, and again, all through relationships that we had built where folks reached out to us to ask for help. So that was, it's always build and nurture the relationships. That's the most valuable advice I've ever received. That's a good one. Uh, you can't, uh, uh, you cannot dispute that because in the end of the day, people looking out for you and being on your side can really be a propellant for your career as well as your business ventures. So thank you for that. If someone would like to connect with you on LinkedIn, Bill, or learn more about Single Pass, where would you suggest they go? How do they do that? Yeah, just connect with me on LinkedIn. It usually helps to write a note. I, mean, I get quite a few connection requests. And if it looks like, you know, again, for folks in the industry, um, I usually don't like to get hit with a bunch of service people trying to sell me, you know, vendors sell me stuff, but I'll connect with most people in the industry because I never know when I need a new service or if I'm looking for additional technical help or, or whatever it may be. But yeah, the easiest way is just to reach out through LinkedIn. And your name is on the screen, but for those that might be listening to this as a podcast, can you spell your last name, Bill? Sure. Cologne is spelled C-O-L-O-N-E. So it's in LinkedIn under Bill Cologne. Well, I want to thank you for giving your time and teaching us a bit and sharing your experience. I really have enjoyed our time together. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate you having me on. Of course. I'd like to thank the audience. You're participating in Orange County's longest running business talk show. Bill's episode is in our catalog. We over have over 1,400 episodes in our catalog of Orange County entrepreneurs who have shared their story. If you're listening to the show and you're an Orange County entrepreneur and you have a story to tell, then you should reach out to us. I'm Rick, R-I-C, Franzi, F-R-A-N-Z-I on LinkedIn. That's also my website, rickfranzi.com. Uh, reach out to us and Haley and I'd be happy to talk to you and see if we can schedule you in a future guest on the program. And until the next time we have a chance to be together, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. Music